Our sermon text this morning comes from the book Haggai, and we will read the whole chapter. It's 15 verses. You can find this on page 512 of the Bibles we provide. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, happy to be with uh, all of you, um, even those of you behind the pole right there. Happy to be with you, too. I can't see you directly. We're going to look at uh, Haggai, which Haggai is a, is a little book that has a huge punch. Um, it, it's short. It's about 38 verses, two chapters. It's, it's so short that it's hard to find in the Bible because it's like one page. And so this is a book that if you've never really looked at it and you've never let it confront you, you are missing out on a major thing that God wants to do in your life, to see the, uh, the order and the priority of your life take the shape in which it was intended to have. And so when we come to Haggai, we're being asked this question. The main question this book asks is, is your life disordered? 
Is your life disordered? What is the top priority of your life, the priority that informs all your activities, all your responsibilities, all your dreams, your goals, your spending habits? What is the first and centering priority of your life? And is your life disordered? The context for Haggai, right, um, and and this is where uh, knowing our Bibles helps us because the Bible is not chronological. the context for, for Haggai that helps us is the book of Ezra chapter 4. And I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to just tell you what happens there. Is The context is God's people in Ezra 4 and in Haggai, uh, God's people, because of their idolatry, they have been um, taken over by the Babylonians and they've, they've been exiled from, from their land and their home in Jerusalem. And so waves of the Babylonians, the strong, big, powerful, conquering nation and army, waves of them come and grab the best and brightest of God's people and take them over to Babylon. And slowly and surely, Jerusalem just becomes decimated and deserted and empty. How many of you know Daniel in the lion's den? Know that, right? And they get get taken, right? That's, that's, That's this setting, okay? That's this setting. So they're getting taken, and eventually... Babylon is taking and taking and taking, and they deliver the final death blow, and they destroy Solomon's temple. They destroy the temple in Jerusalem, which is the centerpiece of religious and cultural life for God's people. It's where the presence of God meets them. It's where they come to offer sacrifice to atone for their sin. It's destroyed and decimated, and God's people in their identity and their faith is brought almost to nothing. And then eventually God raises up another nation, the Persians, and their king Cyrus is a nice king. He knocks out the Babylonians, and he inherits um, the exiled Israelites, and he's nice to them. God stirs his heart in such a way that Cyrus says, you know what? I'm going to send you guys back. You're still still under my control, but I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem. I'm going to give you some wood and some gold and some money and some spending, um, some allowance, and you guys can go back and rebuild your lives and rebuild the temple. This is huge. This is a big deal. And so they go back in Ezra 4, and they're starting to work, and they're beginning to do, uh, do their thing and rebuild their lives, but then there's opposition from the neighboring nations. And so God's people get scared. And so they decide to do this. Well, we started to rebuild the temple a little bit, but this is hard, and there's opposition Let's stop rebuilding the temple because people don't like that. And let's just rebuild our lives. Let's rebuild our lives without the temple. We'll get to that later. And then what we find out when we look at Ezra 4 and we look at Haggai 1 and we see the dates is that God's people had gone 15 years without touching the temple. That from the date that Cyrus sent them back and they start building their homes and they started on the temple but then got scared and stopped, it had been at least 15 years. Now mind you, the temple is the center of their faith where God meets them, where the presence of God dwells. 15 years. Should you imagine if you're a Christian, imagine not praying for 15 years. Imagine not meeting with God's people for 15 years. Imagine not hearing God's word read aloud 15 years. Imagine any relationship that matters in any way, shape, form in your life and avoiding it and putting it on the back burner as a leftover for 15 years. 
That's what's happening in Haggai. And so God raises up a prophet, Haggai. He raises them up and he brings them a word. And the word is this question. Is your life disordered? Is your life disordered? So here are the three things that we're going to look at as we consider Haggai 1. We're going to first consider our, our, the dissatisfaction of our lives. To consider the dissatisfaction of our lives. That's related to, are our lives disordered? Then we're con- going to consider God's remedy. What does God say to people who have disordered their lives because of our waywardness and our foolishness? And then last, we're going to consider the gospel. What is God's message to us in our disordered lives? I want you to notice, looking at the text, though, as God raises up the prophet Haggai to come and speak his word to his people, um, to Zerubbabel, the, the, uh, the governor, and to uh, Joshua, the high priest, um, notice verse 2. God says this through Haggai. He says, the people keep saying it's not yet time to rebuild the house. And then God says this in, in verse 4. Is it time? I love, I love God's humor and, and, and inviting almost rhetorical sarcasm. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Here's what had happened with God's people. They had built up their homes and built up their lives, but neglected the temple. Paneled houses here uh, doesn't mean everybody was living in luxury, but it means there were enough people that had rebuilt their lives and rebuilt their houses and put on the extra sun deck and the game room and the extra thing in the backyard, but had given no attention to the temple. So it's not a matter of we don't have the time, it's hard and I'm tired. No, 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 no. You're living here in luxury and the presence of God is in ruins. And God is calling them out. And what they were doing is they had disordered their lives in order to get something. Notice God's rebuke to them in verse 6. He says this at the end of 5. Consider your what? Consider your ways. And then in 6 he tells them, you've sown much and reaped little. Your life is like a purse with a giant hole in it. You keep working and earning and nothing sticks, nothing changes, nothing satisfies. Consider your ways. Now think about this. They choose not to rebuild the temple, but they choose to rebuild their homes and in some cases live in luxury, and yet they're always dissatisfied. God is showing us that when we put him first, we flourish. When we seek God first and God's kingdom work first, life works best, he's showing us. And what we're seeing is that Israel, they're seeking comfort. They don't want uh, oppression. They don't want conflict. They don't want trouble. And so they say, hey, let's just care about our homes and our economic status and rebuild our city and get our storefronts back going. Let's do all of that stuff and life will be good. And when life is good and everything is comfortable, then we'll get to the temple. But notice God is displaced from the center of their lives and everything is dissatisfying at the end of the day. And God is saying, I'm withholding these things from you because I want to lead you into a real satisfaction. A satisfaction that doesn't come from turning to comfort, doesn't come from turning to uh, goods and materialism, but comes from centering your life on me. Now think, you, you can see where I'm going, right? You guys are smart people. You can see where I'm going right now. Look at how easily and how clearly this parallels to us. Do we not live at a time where we 
have the most stuff and incredible access to everything. And yet, even as we enjoy these things, which are good gifts that God gives, even as we enjoy these things, when we turn to them for comfort or when we turn to them for some type of satisfaction, they always leave us wanting. They always leave us wanting. So I love verses 5 and 6. God is looking his people square in the eye with compassion. He says, where has all of your focus, where has all of your drive for a comfort, successful uh, looking life, where has that gotten you? Consider your ways. Right? Chasing comfort for satisfaction is like chasing the wind. Consider your ways. Where has it led you? Right? I want you to think about this for yourself. Think of this concept of a disordered life. What is that thing that is most prone in your life over maybe the course of your life, over the last week, over the last six months? What is that thing that you place above and ahead of God at the center of your life? What is that thing? What is that set of things? And what does it lead you to? In what ways is it the purse with holes in it that you keep striving for, giving to, investing in, and getting no return? Consider your ways. I love um, this, uh, this research experiment done by a magazine called Science, which uh, for the record is a very creative name, right? Uh, science research in a magazine called Science. Um, but it's done by a, a University of uh, Virginia psychologist and a, and a Harvard team. And what they had done is that they, uh, they wanted to see, are people able, right? Are they able in their souls almost, they don't use that, that, that language, but are they able to just sit quiet in silence with themselves and their own thoughts? And so what they do is they, they set this thing up and say, hey, you can, you know, just sit here for 15 minutes. And, you know, if you get, if you get bored, there's a little button you can use that will shock you. Um, and, you know, if you want to do that, do that. Otherwise, just sit here. And, uh, and so on the front end of the experiment, they, they, talk, to, they talk about the shock with people. And, and uh, they're like, people, most people, they ask them a question. Um, and they, they find out as they ask that question that people would actually pay money to avoid the shock. But they say, okay, we'll have the shock there in case you change your mind while you sit in silence. And, and what they find out is that, uh, one of the researchers writes this about, about all their findings. They said, what is striking is that simply being alone with their thoughts for 15 minutes was apparently so severe that it drove many participants to self-administer the electric shock that they had earlier said they would pay to avoid. Isn't that strange? Isn't that so strange? Right? And, and, I, and I think if we were to tell this to, the, to a person going into this, they would laugh too, right? But I think this shows us something about ourselves. Right? Blaise Pascal, um, writer and, and thinker, said this. He said, I have often said that the sole cause of human unhappiness is that we do not know how to stay quiet in our room. Thinking about Haggai 1, I, I wonder this. Is there a way in which we are empty inside? Because God is not first, and our lives are disordered. Is there a way in which our life is so disordered that our life is the purse with holes in it that's never satisfied? And because of that, it's a struggle 
to just sit with ourselves because then we realize deep down there is just this lingering feeling of dissatisfaction. So God is tapping on our shoulders, whispering in our ears to us and to Israel, consider your ways. Right? And I think Haggai teaches clearly that the remedy to our dissatisfied, disordered lives is to put God first at the center. And that's where God goes from here. Notice what he says in 7 and 8. He says again, a repeated theme of this book, consider your ways. Consider here is to think deeply upon, really reflect upon. And so what you probably need to do with this question is your life disorders is not simply think about it in the context of right now, but carry this thought in this text and think about it this week. Consider your ways. It has this, this, this language and connotation of meditating on it, thinking deeply about this. Consider your ways. And, and God's remedy to our disordered lives is to put him first by doing his work, which is what he says in 7 and 8. He says, consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. So the remedy for our disordered lives and dissatisfaction is to put God first and to do his work. This again parallels Jesus' essential teaching, right, that, that, we, that we read, um, that we had read to us earlier, to seek the kingdom first and all these other things will be added to us. Right, uh, this, this question though you might be asking is, uh, why is putting God first the way that life flourishes best? Why, why, why is that the case? Right? He's, God, God is telling dissatisfied people who are building their own lives to, to take their energy and to, to seek him and to put him first and to build his temple and to pursue his kingdom. Why, why is that the case? Um, I think that the case, uh, that's the reason because we are creatures, right, as Romans 1 says, we are creatures wired to worship. We are going to give ourselves over to something first anyway. It's our default wiring of our heart to put something at the center and to give it our allegiance, to give it our worship, and to bow down to it. That's going to happen no matter what we do. Right? And you'll see all sorts of uh, great writers and thinkers and philosophers who, who don't have a religious bone in their body in terms of their belief who will affirm these same things. One you maybe heard quoted from uh, Pastor Logan or other, um, other writers is from David Foster Wallace, a great uh, writer who passed away a number of years ago. He says, everybody worships. The only chance we get is what to worship. And he goes on to say, the reason to worship uh, uh, something of faith is because anything else you worship will eat you alive at some point. It will just consume you. It'll make you full of pride when you, when you get it and achieve it, and it'll bring you down low into despair when you feel far from it. But we all worship. We all give ourselves to something. But what if we give ourselves to the one who actually can satisfy and the one who is actually worthy and the one who actually has made us to give ourselves to him? Then we begin to step into where life works and flourishes, and we begin to follow Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. So notice what God also says. He says, do this that I may be glorified, that I might take pleasure in it. There's another thing we need to consider, right? When you think about, is your life disordered? Your, your life is putting something on display for everybody to see. Your life is effectively glorifying something. My oldest son is, is three and a half, and so that means he's still completely enamored by a, a fire truck with its lights on, 
right? And, and, or a bus, um, or the moon, or, or, or anything that is really like from one of his books that he sees in real life. Uh, is just this massively big deal. And what he does is when he sees it, is he's going to point, Dad, look at this, and he's just going to point and point and look and just keep blabbling and going on and on and pointing. He's glorifying that thing. He's saying, stop, turn, look at the moon. It's here. It's big. It shines. It's really real. Like, look at its greatness, right? Look at how big it is. This is great. So he's turning, pointing, directing, glorifying. You are doing that with your life to someone or something all the time with the way you spend your money, with the way you go about your free time, with the way that you invest um, or you, you speak about things in conversation, right? You are telling people with your life to stop, turn, and look at this thing because you think it's great. That thing might be you. You might be, stop, turn, look at me. Right? It might be you. It might be your spouse. Right? It might be your hobby. It might be your career. It might be your perfect family. Right? But you are glorifying something. And God says, you're going to do this. You, I've made you to do this. Stop. Glorify me, the thing that actually can satisfy you and satisfy others. So God calls us to that. And then, but, but notice what God is saying. God is saying to work. How many of you like working? Right? How many of you like, like working? There's one person, it's a church with a strong work ethic. There's one person here that likes to work. Right? So you're slothful, right? How many of you like, I hate, or I hate doing things. I'm so lazy sometimes. But God's remedy to our disordered lives is to work. Put him first by seeking his work. Seek the kingdom first is, is the parallel, right? For Israel, for, for them, the work is to rebuild the what? The temple, right? So they need to get the gloves on. They need to get the shovels, the pickaxe. They have real physical work that they need to do, right? For us, the, the parallel that the scriptures give is not a physical temple to rebuild, but to invest into the spiritual temple, which is God's people, the church. This First Peter 2 calls the church a, a, a spiritual house of living stones, and so we're called to, to put, to seek God first in our lives by giving ourselves to his church, which means seeing the, the body of Jesus, the people of Jesus, built up into maturity in, in the gospel, and to see those who don't know Jesus come in and enter into God's grace through the gospel. That's the kingdom work that God is calling us to. Other ways the Bible describes it, seek the kingdom. Love God and love others. Make disciples, the great commandment, the great commission. For them, the work is the temple. For us, it is the church. And I want you to, I want you to think about this. This is eternal, spiritual, life-altering work that God is calling you into. I already mentioned how lazy I can be. The only thing that can really get me to do things is a deadline, but also the, the importance of something. If I can get it through my thick head that this thing that I'm working on is significant, I find that my laziness, my apathy, my weakness is overcome. I want you to understand for, for Israel, to be a part of rebuilding the temple, to have your name on that list of people, would be like entering God's Hall of Fame. That you'd be able to say in old age, hey, you know that part of the temple? That little corner over there? 
I worked on that. I laid bricks there. See this finger that, that's gone? It got smashed by a brick there. Right? To be able to say that you played a part in rebuilding and reestablishing God's presence among his people would be incredible. Do you really understand that the work that we get to do in the new temple, the church, is far greater than the work of the physical temple? Do you really understand that putting God first and seeking his kingdom through building up the church, God is actually letting us play a part in revealing his glory to the world and letting the whole world, the nations, JP and beyond, letting them know that there is a creator who has made a way to them through Jesus Christ. There is no greater, more significant work that we could be involved in. And I want you to think about this this way, is that when you start to see that, you will start to give yourself to this work in unique and powerful ways because God will empower you through that. Think of it this way. You have three people doing back-breaking manual labor, laying bricks, let's say. Person one is laying bricks, and they hate it. Day after day, laying the brick, they hate it, they hate it, they hate it. Why am I doing this? This is pointless. This is menial. I, I have so much more potential. They despise the work. Maybe you feel that way sometimes about what the church is doing or, or are you making disciples. That's person one. You have person two who is doing the same work right next to them, same hour, every day, same thing, right? But, the, but they're starting to think, you know, I, I do hate this, yeah, uh, but it's okay because I know these bricks are going to turn into a wall and, you know, walls are useful for keeping people away and helping people go where they need to go, and the walls are good. I'm building a wall. This is okay. It's all right. So they keep at it, but there's, there's really nothing there. Then you have person three who's over here, and they're tired, and they're sore, but they build with energy, and they build with passion, and they build with excitement. And you stop and you ask them, why are you doing this? You're doing the same thing they're doing and they're doing. That person hates it. This person sort of hates it. But you seem happy. Like You talk about that. It's hard, but you seem to love this. And this person over here tells you, like, yeah, this is really hard, but do you know what we're building? I understand right now it looks like a kindergartner did this, but do you understand what this is going to turn into? Do you understand that this isn't just a brick that's becoming a wall, but this is going to become a building? that's gonna become this castle, that's gonna become this monument, that's gonna be the most beautiful thing that our city has ever seen. And so this person who understands the story that they're in is able to give themselves to the work in a unique way because the story empowers them. But these two over here forgot. And so all they do is complain. And all they do is feel tired, which they should because the work is hard, but they've missed the story. I wonder how many of us right now have forgotten the story that we are in because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see the vision and the beauty of God's work that he is doing through his church across the world, but through his church in this room, in this neighborhood? That every time 
You pray for somebody in your neighborhood to know the gospel. You are laying down a brick that is going to become this beautiful work of art when God renews all things. Do you understand every time that you serve in kids, every time you do setup, every time you meet with your community groups, every time you, you seek to open the Bible with another person, every time you, uh, you even talk about your faith in a, in a meaningful way or ask questions of someone who doesn't know Jesus, do you understand you are doing the hard work of seeing Jesus' church built up in the world so that people can receive his grace and know his glory? That this is the type of work that feels at times boring and feels at times like you're hitting your thumb with the hammer over and over and over and nothing is being built but your finger is now broken. It feels that way at times. But do you understand the story? Do you understand where it's going? Do you understand that God is in it? That's the question for us. And that's the remedy that fixes our disordered lives when we put God first and seek his kingdom. So let me ask you this. Are you giving yourselves to God's work? Think of it this way. Do you invest yourself, time, money, energy, skills to God's work with the same passion that you give to your favorite hobby? Do you give yourself to Jesus' kingdom work in the same way that you give yourselves to that thing you run after first when you know you have free time. If that's disproportionate, maybe you don't know the story. Maybe you've forgotten. Do you, are we giving ourselves to God's work or are we giving God the cold leftovers? I want you to think about this. What did you think about neglecting somebody for 15 years and then getting the phone call from that person? And imagine that person. Imagine the guilt that's washing over you as you see their name on the phone, right? And you hit decline or reject or whatever the red button is. But imagine getting that call and a person isn't hammering you with guilt but in a penetrating, loving way, is going to ask you the question that's actually going to lead you to forgiveness and change. God's people have got to feel so ashamed as Haggai comes to them. And that's not like 15 days, we're talking 15 years. And yet God doesn't disown them. He says to them, consider your ways, which is an invitation to receive his forgiveness and turn because of that grace. And notice what actually happens in verses 12 through following. God's people listen and obey. This almost, never this almost never happens when a prophet comes to God's people. They listen and they obey. This is incredible. And notice what God says. Notice what God does. He stirs them up for the work and the people begin to fear him. They get a renewed sense of God's holiness, of God's mercy. And because of that, they turn and they obey. They say, God, we have been wrong. Forgive us. Help us turn and help us obey. God says to them, consider your ways. He stirs them up as he promises that he's with them. I want you to lastly consider the gospel. 
because that's what's happening here. The, the shad in the shadows, the, the foreshadowing here is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. That they consider their ways and they turn. There's this moment of, convert, of repentance, of, of a renewed turn back to God. Right, in, in Haggai, the, the temple lays in ruins, but the people do no work to save God's temple. But in Jesus, our lives lay in ruins, but God sends his son to do the difficult work of atoning for us. Once you consider it this way, there is no person that can stand in this room and say, I have been devoted to God 100%, him at the center of my life. There is no person who can stand and say that. But Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John is able to say, honestly, that to do the Father's will is for him like eating food. That is what he does. Do you understand that through the Gospel, Jesus Christ has not only atoned for every single way in which your life has been disordered, every single thing that you've put above God, not only has he atoned for that, but in every single way in which he has been fully devoted to God, that is now placed and credited and given and put upon you like a robe over your shoulders. That through trusting in Jesus' atoning work, God actually sees you right now as his son or his daughter. He sees you right now as if you have always been devoted with dirty hands doing kingdom work with full perfection. That through Jesus, not only you're forgiven of all of your disordered ways, but God sees you as if you have been the number one fully perfect worker, prayer, evangelist, builder, lover, and devoted person to him. He doesn't see you as a slacker. He doesn't see you as this person that I've got to just bring along and they'll finally be able to use a hammer. He sees you the way he sees his son because through Christ upon the cross, he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. To put God first, you must trust that Jesus has atoned for all of the ways you have failed to live an ordered life. And by his grace, he is renewing your ways right now. To put God first is to put ourselves in the way in which life works best. But to do that, we have to see Christ, trust him, and ask God to renew our ways. But when we do that, we step into the story that matters, and we begin to be empowered for the work, just like God's people. Let's pray. Father, we ask for uh, your mercy and your grace uh, for where we have lived disordered lives, and we're so thankful that you have sent your son Jesus to do what we could not do, to live a perfect life and to atone through the cross by his blood for our sin and our idolatry and our disordered lives. God, would you press this truth of the gospel deep into our minds and our hearts each day, that we would, from a, a, a place of full acceptance before you, would then seek to keep you at the center of our lives and give our time, our energy, and our talent to you in worship as we pursue your kingdom work. 
for your glory in the city and for your glory in the nations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.